0: Tonight, what I wanted to do was to wrap up our our series on the historical figures, but there's not a historical figure tonight. Uh, What we've been doing, if you're new, is that our our church vision is to be a church of disciple-makers. We want to be a vibrant church of disciple-makers that reproduces vibrant churches locally and globally. And every disciple-maker is not just a follower of Christ, but someone who catches zeal and fire for the gospel and for the mission of Jesus that they want to dedicate their life to to make disciples right and and to reproduce disciples and then be part of the movement of the gospel wherever god would call. and so we looked at examples like calvin and um i think kevin talked about john owen and uh gabe preached on hudson taylor Uh, tonight we're just going to look at uh, the bible okay and we're going to wrap we're going to wrap this up uh and Tonight, I'm, I want to answer this question. And I think you already know, so I'll, I'll make it deductive. Which is, what drove each historical disciple-maker? You know, I believe that there's something that motivated them. And it's cliche, but it's it's the glory of God. right? But it's something deeper than that. They were driven by a conviction to glorify God. But deep inside, they knew... That God would only be glorified if His wrath would be satisfied. And that's what I'm going to unpack tonight. God would only be truly glorified if His wrath and if His judgment and if His holy righteous anger against all of mankind was satisfied. And they understood that the only person who could satisfy that wrath would be Christ Christ. And thus, that's what broke their heart for people who, you know, still had the wrath of God held against them. That's what motivated them in terms of compassion and mercy. Understanding that they, had, they themselves were forgiven and declared righteous before a holy God. And so tonight I want to talk about what they had, you know, this zeal, this passion to glorify God. And theologians call this a jealousy for God's glory. So if you're taking notes, you can write that down. A jealousy for the glory of God. We often think of jealousy as a negative emotion. We think of it as a bad thing. And when you're talking about a selfish context, yeah, jealousy is a bad thing. You're jealous of of something that you don't have. You're jealous of someone else for what they have, uh, who they are, their stage in life. It could be whatever it is. Jealousy is a bad thing. But when it comes to God, it's a good thing. And you have to wrap your mind around this. When I first became serious about Christianity, when when the Lord first opened my eyes to the truth and, and saved me from my blindness, I had to consider this. I'm like, God jealous? That's not good. But God is jealous for His own glory, and that's a good thing. Even if you talk to an atheist, right? An intelligent atheist, they will say this, I don't believe in God. I don't believe there is a God. But by dictionary definition and by human logic, if there was a God, that person would have the right to be to be jealous for their own glory. Meaning, God, when God doesn't get His own glory, He's the only person who can be jealous, and, and He can look around and He's like, "I created the human race, and they're worshiping all types of things and stuff and people and idols, and God is jealous." for worship he wants people to worship him and there's only one person in the world who has that right and by definition if if there is a god that god by by essence has the right to desire worship that's the essence of being a god right what else does it mean to be a god so even an atheist would agree with you so god by definition exists to be worshiped therefore he has the right to be jealous when other people don't worship him. And his disciple makers, out of love and compassion, are also jealous for God's glory. They look around and they're like, there's people not worshiping God. And they're, if they understand mercy, their reaction is not, God, crush them, right? That's not the right response. But their hearts begin to break and they say, God, there's people out there on the mission field who don't know you. They're not worshiping you. They're worshiping. They are They think that life is all about money and they're dying. They think that life is all about pleasure and sex and their souls are empty. They need you. You need their worship. God doesn't need it, but He desires it. So then they go out there, like Hudson Taylor or these historical figures, and they they defend the truth, they go out and help people understand the purpose and, and, and the meaning of life as laid out in the Bible and as graciously revealed to them so that 's where we 're going to go tonight, but i 'm going to go to a a text that may be familiar for some of you because it 's one of my favorite texts i, I think I think I've preached it in FCBC before at some point in, uh, over the past decade and a half that I've been here or something like that. But uh, maybe it's unfamiliar because it's in the Pentateuch. It's in the, the book of Numbers. So <clears throat> I'm not good at math. The only numbers that I like are is this one. Okay, so take your Bibles. Turn with me to the book of Numbers. Book of Numbers is in the beginning of the Bible, towards the front end of your Old Testament. Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. I'll give you a moment to turn there. Numbers Chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. Numbers 25, verses 1 to 13. Give you a minute to pull that up. Alright, let me read this to you. Moses writes this says, while Israel lived in Shirayim, the people... I have to pronounce that in Hebrew, otherwise, you know, I'll get in trouble, right? <laughs> you guys, so you have your Bibles, you can read that. I did it in English one time, and I just read it in English, and someone came up to me afterwards, so now I, I read it in Hebrew. I think John has this Hebrew open. It's, it's Shirayim. <laughs> you know, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. Verse 6. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand. Don't do this, beloved. Okay? And went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Verse 10, And the Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was, and here's where you get the theological point from, he was jealous. Right? So what do you mean the jealousy of God? Where does that come from? Right? He was jealous with my jealousy. So the Bible says God is jealous, right? It says he was jealous with my jealousy jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. That's what God says. Verse 12, Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because, once again, it's repeated, he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. So, Numbers 25 is another account, if, if you're familiar with Israel wandering through the wilderness, it's another account of Israel turning away from God, resulting in God's wrath being poured out upon them. In other words, here's another occasion where Israel should have been killed, not just a few of them, but if you read it carefully, God wanted to just destroy them. Okay, He was going to just kill all of them. Not because they were ignorant, but because they knew God. They had experienced God working for them, but yet they turned to worship other idols, other gods, other foreign gods. And so this nation was going to get terminated by God for their lack of faith. And they would not exist if it were not for, according to this text, One man who was jealous for the glory of God, who made atonement for Israel. We know that ultimate, true atonement can only come through Christ. But at this point, God allows Phineas to make this temporary atonement for the people of Israel. So we see the example of God's compassion. But first, let's set this up. Why? So this is all context before I get to point number one. Why is God so angry at them, at Israel? What's their sin? So we got to unpack this a little bit in terms of explanation. The context is, in the passage right before Numbers 25, God had defended Israel from Balaam's curse. So there was a curse that that was pronounced against Israel and God had defended Israel from this curse. And at this point, Israel should have remembered a few things. One, that God was kind to them, delivering them over and over again. The ultimate story of deliverance is the deliverance from Egyptian slavery, the exodus events, right? That they should have kept covenant with God because whenever they rebelled against God, it was bad news. They would get conquered. They would get defeated. Bad things would happen to them. They would be punished. But whenever they obeyed God and whenever they... Remember God, God was gracious to them and they experienced blessing. So how easily they would forget though the grace and the mercy and the power of their God. So here in Numbers 25, they fell into heathen seduction, meaning they were being seduced. And yes, this kind of reflects in the culture that we live in. They were being seduced sexually and they were falling into sexual immorality with the Moabites. Verse 1 tells us that while Israel was living in this city, I'm not going to pronounce it, Shittayim, right? While the people were living there, the children of Israel began to, look at the language that Moses chooses, whore. So that tells you their sexual immorality, right? So, so the context, the picture of spiritual adultery, real adultery, but also spiritual idolatry. So it's both adultery and idolatry, both. Okay, both before the Lord. It said they began the whore with the daughters of Moab. Back in those days, Israel was given a specific command that they were they were not to marry outside of the Israelite camp. They were not to marry Gentiles. That was just how it was back then. Okay, God had his plan for that. Now obviously, God has a heart and desire to reach the nations and, and uh intermarriage is fine, but, but but for some reason that was his command to the Jewish people. Uh, for And the main reason was because often God knew that if the sons of Israel married women from Gentile nations, that they would begin to worship the Gentile gods. That these women would seduce the Israelite men to then worship idols. And that was God's idea. That was His purpose. That was His understanding. And even though He had those laws, Israel constantly, continually failed. And, and turn towards both adultery and idolatry. So considering what Israel, up to this point in Numbers, they've tested, uh, consider what they've gone through. They've tested God several times before, and He's unleashed His wrath on Israel. He's unleashed His wrath, uh, reminding them that He is their God, yet they haven't learned their lesson. So consider that buildup. So that's why He's so mad that He's like, that's it. This is the last straw. I'm going to destroy you guys verse verse 2 tells us that not only were they participating in sexual immorality but they were worshiping the false idols of the Moabites. And then verse 3 tells us that Israel yoked himself to Baal-Peor. That's a strong word. Right? When you yoke yourself to someone, this is the picture of husband and wife coming together. Okay, you become one with someone when you yoke yourself, right? And so again, there's all the the tones here, there's all of the context here that Moses chooses that that there's this complete idea of sexual immorality happening, that there's a sexual union or the initiation into some cultic practice with sexuality. When we read this, you know, we're like, that's gross. But when you think about our culture today, this is the culture we live in, right? Because Satan has consistently, consistently used sexual immorality as a way to lure the people of God away from keeping their promises to God and to one another. Right. so verse 3 kind of sets it up how, that's how bad it was. Okay, that leads us to point number one. God wants to destroy them because He needs His glory. God must be worshipped. God is jealous for His own glory. He wants it satisfied and our sins must be atoned for. Point number one, their sins had to be paid for. Now look at verse 3. I'll read it to you once again, verse 3. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Right, And when you think of kindled, I mean, I I, I read that in English. I'm like, this is a weak word. You know, I have an Amazon device called a kindle, and I love it. Um, no, kindled is just imagine the face of God burning with anger, and it's just constantly lighting up with fire. That He's just... Building up that wrath—it's like adding up wrath. If if you can imagine, and I'm kind of corny, so so I'm a little older. I used to play Street Fighter, you know, when I was younger, and I just remember when you pull back for the fireball, right? You're, oh, you know, whatever it is, you're pulling back for the fireball, and and I just I, I know it's it's much more terrifying than this. But I just imagine God just like this huge fireball of wrath being pulled back, and and I don't say that to make fun. I mean, just we were all destined. For that wrath, and and that's, it was kindling. It was kindling. It was lighting up, right? And then verse four. And the Lord said to Moses. So the Lord tells Moses, and I want you to see here that Moses is disobedient. Okay, I mean we don't often think of Moses as disobedient, but the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people. So he's saying, take the leaders, and hang them in the sun. Can I hang them in the moon? No, hang them in the sun. Before the Lord, that the fierce anger, not just anger. So, you know how like you push fierce? So that's, again, street fighter, right? But uh, the fierce button, so I'm old, okay? But the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Because there's, there's this fireball that's just about to come down to them, right? And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you. So, Moses doesn't obey, right? So, Notice what the Lord said, verse 4. Moses, you're going to kill all the leaders. I want you to kill all the leaders. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal Peor. So Moses doesn't want to kill the leaders. He says, essentially, to the leaders, hey, rather than you being killed, go find out which one of your men committed adultery or idolatry and kill them. Okay, and that's actually disobedience to God's direct command. And so it's, so the anger of the Lord was kindled, right? Kindled against Moses and against the people, right? The anger of the Lord is described as a fierce anger again. And the people are fully deserving of God's wrath. Now, why the leaders? This is crazy. This is unthinkable, Okay. What if the leaders weren't the ones who were in sin? It's because back in Old Testament times, the leaders were supposed to be spiritual leaders. It's not too different from the context of the church. Uh, and and remember that when Jesus came, he was mad at who, the religious leaders of Israel, because they had led God's people astray. He saw people. He saw the the people of Israel as sheep without a without a shepherd. And then even when he wanted the ultimate leader, the prototypical leader who would point towards Christ, it was David, a shepherd. Right? So, so you see all these themes of, of of God wanting to shepherd his people and uh, God's leader was always supposed to be a spiritual leader, even though even if they were militarily strong. So Moses, as uh, when he was originally in the wilderness, he was a shepherd, but he was also a spiritual leader. He had a relationship with God, right? David was to be a man after God's own heart, Uh, You look at every single leader that God actually appoints and God says, that's my leader. It's a spiritual leader. And so this is unthinkable. So this would be, just so you understand it, let's just say that there's a few of you here, in here, in, in transit that sin. So one, I have to go die. So someone hangs me. And then the entire leadership team. Now, Gabe, you got to die, man. You're an intern, so you're gonna die because I don't care if you didn't do it. I don't care if you go to TMS. Someone else in, you're gonna die. Who else is a leader? So who? who made, Madeline, you're gonna die. Nathan, you're gonna. They, don't look away. You're gonna die. Right? That's how it was. Imagine. That's what the command was. Right? Whoever's a leader, you die. Calvin's back there. You guys are wearing red. All of you guys. You guys are gonna die. Okay, you're going to die because other people sin, Or let's just say all of I.T. sinned except for the leaders. Well, guess who's going to die? Not you guys, but the leaders. That's the price, right? That sets you up because when God provides His ultimate atonement, it was the King of Kings. It was the, the Son of God who would pay the, the penalty for sin. Right? But um, it sets it up for that. But in the text, Moses... Verse 5, Moses said to the judge of Israel, each of you kill those of his men, so he doesn't listen, right? Now, what what are these judges? I I mean, we know that eventually we get to the book of Judges, okay? But already here in Numbers, notice there are judges. And so to give you some context, the judges were leaders over 1,000s. One hundreds or tens of people. So it's, it's, you're either a, a judge, a leader over a thousand people, a leader over a hundred people, or a leader over tens of people, right? And so, so then he orders them, kill those who have, uh, he, he tells these kind of supervisors or managers, like, go, go, go kill the people who have sinned. So the point here is God is still angry and he gets even more angry because Moses didn't obey to the dying. Right, right, right. So understand, hear the overtones of the gospel. This is impossible for us. This is impossible. It's not fair for the leaders if they didn't sin, right? That's how we think. But God is righteous to be jealous, and he, He's jealous for His own glory. Whether we like it or not, He's jealous for His own glory. And just hear the overtones of the gospel. Our sins, the sin of mankind must be atoned for. Whether we think we're guilty or whether we were the ones who were that bad. You know, what if I wasn't the one having sexual immorality? What if it was someone else? Doesn't matter. You're a leader and you die or you all die. Right? So all of our sins, whether we think we're good or bad or whether we're actually pretty good people, our sins must be atoned for. Second, God's word must be honored to the dime and nobody in history could actually keep that desire of God keep that command except for Jesus Christ Right? God's word must be honored and Moses kind of said honestly I would have done what Moses did I would have looked at the leaders and said hey I know you guys I know it wasn't you just go get the guys who actually did the crime but God wasn't satisfied by that Right? God had specific commands. So when God spoke to Moses, he should have obeyed entirely, but he watered down the word of God by altering God's command for the sake of practicality. right? Because it would make sense for guilty sinners to die, not the leaders. What are you going to do without the leadership team? Why would you kill the people who could have been the most faithful? just doesn't make sense, but sometimes... We have to honor God's word, even if it doesn't make sense to us. To aggravate things, look at verse 6. It says, behold. So all of this is happening, right? So, so, so just, just get this. In the background, all the leaders are, are, are telling, you know, they're killing people. They're trying to kill the people who are crying. Obviously, there's fear going through the camp of Israel. They know they're in trouble. Moses is probably scared and, and trying to figure out what to do. And it says, behold, look at the brazen Hard-heartedness of uh, this—you can call him a nimwit. No, I'm just kidding. It sounds like Hebrew, but it's not, right? But but that's what you would call this guy, right? Says, "Behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman." to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of the meeting. Are you kidding me? You are getting punished. The whole nation is about to get killed. There's a fireball of wrath coming down at you because of sexual immorality, because you went outside the camp, because you yoked yourself to the woman of Uh, Peor and Baal of Peor and the Midianites and here you're going to have the audacity to just sin right in front of Moses and before the whole congregation of the people and no shame so that's what he's doing okay so this guy's so hard headed or he's blind and he has no common sense I mean you know what I'm saying I mean at least go hide if you're going to be bad go hide from everybody else this man has no fear of God He did this with no shame. He didn't care. He didn't care that people died for their sins. That that he just witnessed that there were people who got killed because they violated God. He was chasing after his lust, the lust of his flesh. But then in verse 7, verses 7 and 9, there's something that turns God's wrath into mercy. So verse 7, look with me now. It says, when Phineas... The son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it. He rose and left the congregation like we read earlier. He took a spear in his hand. Now, we don't do this, okay? You want to be jealous for God's glory? You don't go and stab other people. Um, I'm not making a joke out of it, but there was one man who was already pierced for our transgressions, okay? Um But he went after the man of Israel into the chamber. So I'm going to explain the context of that. And pierced both of them. The man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless those who died by the plague were 24,000 people. So 24,000 people died because God put his fiery plague through the camp. And the plague was just killing off people. This was God's judgment. Now, later Jewish interpretation, so I I had to look at uh, the JPS Torah commentary, right? It's a Jewish commentary to understand this context. I mean, what do you mean? Why include this piercing the the man and the woman through her belly? This was one strike. They were uh, committing sexual immorality and while they were sinning, in the act, and Phineas just stabbed them straight through. Okay, straight through. Two people, one spear. Right? Just bam, one time. Uh, and that's how later Jewish interpretation held that Phineas found the two of them in the act of sexual immorality. He was so jealous for God's word, grabbed the spam immediately upon that the wrath of God was held back and the plague stopped. That's what the text tells us. So Phineas stopped the wrath of God. He stopped the plague because God saw this act of, as an act of righteous anger. And again, we would never do that today. Right? God, If we do that, God says that's murder. Okay? But for some reason in this context, in this context, God says, that satisfied my wrath. Right? And so there's our points. Our sins must be atoned for. God's word must be honored. But point number three, God's wrath must be satisfied. Right? Someone, something, must satisfy the wrath of God. And this, again, you hear, the, you hear the tone of the gospel coming through. Look at verse 11. Numbers 25, verse 11. God says, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel. In that he was jealous with my jealousy. So he had a godly, righteous, it wasn't his own jealousy, it wasn't his own anger. He was jealous, he, 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 he stood forward, he said, man, God deserves the glory, God deserves the worship. And, and, and this is so ridiculous and sinful, how can this person disregard our holy God in this way? Especially when God's wrath and righteousness is being unveiled in front of us. And so he sheds the blood of, of two people and that's what God says at the end of verse 11, so that I did not consume. That's what I mean. That's what, when you think of the consuming fire. Right? I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. So basically, if you look at all the times jealousy is used here, and you, you put it together logically as a, as a verse. You see, God is jealous. His jealousy is going to consume the people. But when someone else was jealous for God's glory, God said, that satisfies me. And so I'll, I'll relent. If you're a disciple maker, your heart breaks for people. You know that God is jealous for his own glory and the judgment is coming. And when you look at someone, you say, you know what, though? I need to share the gospel. I need to help this person grow. I need to confront, I need to address this issue. I need to walk with this person. I need to tell them about Jesus. And if I tell them about Jesus and if, if they have Christ... And they come to Christ and Christ stands between them and God. And they need to know that there is a Son of God who satisfies the wrath of God. Otherwise, God's wrath is going to consume them. Right, so God is jealous for His own glory. His wrath must be satisfied. Now look at verses 12 and 13. This is God speaking, but Moses recording it. therefore say, Behold, I give my covenant of peace. I give him, I give to to Phineas my covenant of peace. And it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of perpetual priesthood. Meaning they would be spiritual leaders. They would be priests among Israel because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Now it's fitting that God makes a covenant of peace with Phineas because all of Phineas his descendants, like I mentioned, would be part of the priesthood. And it's fitting because Phineas, in his zeal, acted as a priest. That's what a priest does. A priest stands before God and the people and offers a sacrifice and prays for the people. A priest mediates worship of the people to God. A priest would say, kill me if you want to kill the people of God. Kill me. Right, A priest stands before you and God and stands before God and you. He, he's the mediator. And so all of this, you just, just think, this points towards Christ. Christ is the great high priest. Christ is the mediator. Christ is, is the one who makes atonement, who, who ultimately satisfies the wrath of God, not just for the people of Israel, but for all of us. And so, let me give you two main point statements. The central truth is the original context. The original context, which we clearly see from the passage, is godly jealousy turned back the wrath of God. That's what happened. If you you were to read Numbers 25, you would say, that's what happened. Somebody was jealous for God's glory. God says it's a righteous, godly jealousy. Godly jealousy turned back the wrath of God. But the big idea is the Christian message. Where you read Numbers 25... First, interpreting the original context for Israel, which you see on one side of the slide, and then you say, how does that apply in light of the New Testament, in light of us with the New Covenant, in light of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, and that would be, only the blood of Christ can satisfy the wrath of God. Only the blood of Christ can turn back the wrath of God. Only the blood of Christ. Only the blood of Jesus. And so, based on that, there are three implications that we can clearly take home today for New Testament Christians. Three implications. And implications lead to applications. But the first implication is only Christ can satisfy the wrath of God. That's critical. So we have to remember this as disciple makers. That it's not about us. Right? It's not about anything we can say. When, when, when we disciple people, our goal is simply to spur them and to push them towards Christ. Whether you're a parent, uh, you can't believe truly for your child, right? You can't get into your child's heart and believe for them. Same thing for your friends, for your loved ones. You can't get into their heart and believe for them. You actually don't know what they're thinking or feeling genuinely. Only God sees. So the best thing you can do is push people towards Christ, the other thing is, we need to remember. Sometimes disciple makers, you get discouraged because, because you know, I get it. When you try to fix people, look, you and I, we can't fix people. Only Jesus can make people whole. Right? Only Jesus can make people right. I'll tell you two practical illustrations. You've been praying for me now. My grandfather's like ninety years old in a nursing home, uh, not a Christian probably going to pass sometime soon i went to see him um and my sisters and i are are, are trying to uh find ways to share the gospel with him but but he's you know we speak kind of broken mandarin he speaks like cantonese and uh my grandma and and my mom are, are probably like hey you know give him peace let him let him rest in peace don't bother him and and because of this language barrier and because of the, my, my family's not that close, you know, uh, my sisters and I are trying to say, how do we, uh, sneak in there without telling my parents and to just drop the gospel to him? You know, I mean, I can't just bring Pastor Wilson in there with my, with everybody there. They're going to be like, who is this guy? we were told you, right? How do we do it? And I just remember, I don't have to speak the language. You know, Jesus is going to say them, but maybe I got to get in there, right? The other thing you can pray for me and this one I I invited Pastor Frank so you guys know I recently moved and, uh, and I'm trying to intentionally evangelize to my neighbors but uh, one side they just drive in their garage and close the door so I wait for trash day like okay when she comes gets her trash can you know I'm gonna just introduce myself uh, on the other side, there's, there's a family, they're a large family, and, and they speak Mandarin, like real Mandarin, like curls and stuff from China, and um, I can't understand them, and, and and one day, you know, and, and they got all these kids, so, so it's, it's like all these families, so hopefully they don't hear this recording, they, they wouldn't understand it maybe, but, but but basically, there's like two sets of, like there's a, there's a husband and wife, a husband and wife, and then like, there's like five children, so probably two each, or three two and three. And then there's like two sets of grandparents. And they're always outside playing. And uh, one day she yells to me uh, and, you know, and, and, she, and she says in Chinese, are you Chinese? You know, I'm like, what if I wasn't? What if I was Korean? You know, I look Korean. Right? What if I was Korean? You know? Um, and so I was like, yes. And then she starts asking me, I think she said, what province are you from? And I'm like, I oh, don't know. I was born here. And I, and I start like Looking for ways to speak Mandarin, I was like, "Oh man, I gotta in- invite Pastor Frank, you know, because I don't even understand what she's saying to me." And then, and I keep apologizing for how bad my Chinese is, and, and then she's like, "You're from Taiwan, right?" I'm like, "No, I'm not. Uh, I, I don't know." And then, uh, and eventually, each day, God gives me these different opportunities. And then, and then, so I, I told Pastor Frank, "I'm like, Pastor Frank, what do I do?" And he says, "Don't worry, build the relationship." He said, like, "You don't have to speak Chinese." just speak the language of love and, and 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 so they saw me they saw me def- defrosting this uh fridge that that the old owners left behind and they just left it there and then they came up to say hey can we buy that fridge off you our fridge broke and so you know i got an opportunity uh last sunday as a waiter now i'm like pushing it over and you know speaking chinese like broken chinese with them I'm, and then it the conversation always like dies right because then it's like i'm like oh and, 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 and I, can, I can say, like, hey, do you want to come to church? But after that, I don't know how to say, like, Christianity. I, I don't even know how to say gospel. I, I don't know how. So um, anyway, I think I'm going to invite Pastor Frank over. And, and right at the time when all their kids are out, we're going to go out there. And, and he can tell them where he's from, <laughs> you know, he's from what province and everything. But But, yeah, it was just an encouragement that it's not on me because the whole time i'm like man and i i'm like i'm like i'm the one that got kicked out of chinese school i should have paid attention i'm the one that didn't listen to my parents and didn't want to speak mandarin at home and uh you know and all i remember from chinese school is like the guys where you could erase his you know wang da zhong and stuff like that you know li xiaoming and some of you guys know what i'm talking i got kicked out of chinese school um i did because i made fun of the exercises and stuff um i got kicked out of chinese school or, or they told my parents that he's wasting time and, you know, he's, you should take him out. And my mom said, okay, we'll, we'll take you out. I should have paid attention. But then Pastor Frank reminded me and he said, no, just push them. Push them towards an opportunity. Guys, I don't know what it's like for you. But if you start looking around, you will begin to recognize, okay? And, and so the one thing I'll say about disciple making, and I say this in Sunday school, in, in the Sunday school. So if you're in there, you've heard this, is that when you're an accountant, you look at numbers all day, like not this number, real numbers. And so, so when you look at a balance sheet, you can see it a lot quicker than someone like me, like, hey, there's something wrong here. Okay. But if you're not an accountant, you probably look at that and you have to go pay an accountant. Say, hey, can you can you look at this? Is this right? If you're a structural engineer, are there any in here? Okay. I, I have my friends an engineer. He'll go into the house and he'll be like, yeah, that's not sound, or that wasn't done right, or that could be better, right? And I just don't have those eyes. But if you're an engineer and you look around, you just look and you see. Okay, if you're a disciple maker, you can recognize the genuine seekers over time. You will begin to look around and you will say, okay, th- that person probably not open. Oh, open door here. And our goal is we can't satisfy the wrath of God for them. We can't fix them. You're not going to take a spear and spear them. or You're supposed to just find ways to push them towards Jesus and pray for the opportunity where he allows you to open your mouth and say something. Uh, and eventually, maybe the Lord will allow you to share the gospel. Right? Second, apart from Christ, we all face eternal judgment. I think that's what drives me the most because I can just say, you know what? I don't speak Chinese. Forget it. I'm done. You know, like I'm not from whatever, you know, I'm just going. But I think what drives me and and what and I'm, I'm not a good example, obviously, because I can't communicate. Okay. But what should drive all of us, I think, is just having hearts to break that when we look at people, whether we know them or not just to say, hey, I don't know if that person's a Christian or not, but if they're not, they're headed to a place where I deserve to go. But somebody took the time to share the gospel with me, and again, if if you're reformed in your theology, you know, God in his sovereign grace revealed that, you know, all that, right? Mumble jumble, right? God opened my eyes and, and his efficacious grace drew me. It's nice to know that theology, but to actually practice it is to have parts that are broken for those whose eyes are still closed. So if we understand that apart from Christ we all face eternal judgment and it makes us less judgmental and wanting to engage and love and understand people. Okay? Apart from Christ we will all face eternal judgment. And half the battle is loving people. Loving people. Third, the gospel must be proclaimed whatever the cost because Christ paid the ultimate cost how do you do that how do you convey this how do you communicate this if they when they talk to you and see you can't see that right that there's this urgency there's this zeal for the jealousy of god but you're not going out there saying hey look i want to kill people that's islamic uh terrorism right you know and and i'm saying that the extreme the extremists if you say that if you say hey if you don't believe what i believe then you deserve to get speared i I don't think that's our message that's none of us would go out that way but the gospel must be proclaimed whatever the cost because there is a penalty penalty to be paid and christ paid it how do they see that and so i mentioned this on sunday i'm going to mention it here i mentioned it in my disciple in the disciple making sunday school class you have to genuinely care about people I'll give you two practical examples. Recently, um, I had the opportunity to to be talking about Christianity with an unbeliever. And rather than just throwing what I believe on that person, I I asked them, and and, and it took a while, for them to explain to me. So I actually didn't get to say what I wanted to say in terms of what I believe. but but, but, But I asked, well, what do you believe? about this certain topic and what's your view, worldview and why do you believe in this? And then that person said, afterwards said, hey, um, actually, I, I'm surprised you kind of asked that because most pastors or most Christians just want to tell us what they believe. And whenever I even try to, it was a she, it was a context of a couple that I was talking with. She says, you know, whenever I try to say what I believe, I'm just told I'm wrong and I'm shot down. And of course, in my head, I'm, I'm like, yeah, you know, what you believe is wrong. But, but in my heart, I, I was like, no, I genuinely want to know what you believe, right? Then I was um, meeting up with, a, with another brother who is trying to reach his phone. And our conversation was about aliens, right? Because in that context, right, even if a person says to you, hey, I believe That we were left behind by aliens. Our job as disciple makers, before we get to saying, hey, you're dead wrong, is to actually give the whole Starbucks session or whatever it is to say, hey, why do you believe that? How did you come to believe that? And genuinely care to listen without judgment. And maybe when they share, They will share something and give you some insight as to where they are. And maybe a door will open for you to present the gospel. Right. So, these are the implications. If we understand, number one, we understand that we can't fix people. We can't save people. We can't stand in front of people. Only Christ can satisfy the wrath of God and we need to spur them on towards Christ but what motivates us is understanding that that he's the only savior secondly apart from Christ we will all face eternal judgment if we understand that that pushes us right to say to look at people and say hey I I gotta find a way to let them know about Jesus even if it's minimal even if I just do a little bit and, and, and but it's really God who's gonna take it and thirdly The gospel must be proclaimed. But in our world, to proclaim the gospel, we do have to listen first. If we simply go out proclaiming, sometimes they're like, why should I listen to you? Listen to them first. Ask them what they really believe. And as funny or as wild as it seems, genuinely love them and care for them. And it has to be genuine. And that's why if you love God, you will love people. And if you love people, people will will want to ask you, Hopefully, about Christ, and then you can say Christ paid the ultimate cost for our sins once you begin to talk about that. Okay, here's your discussion questions. The first one is just the context you know, sexual sin is one of the ways Satan tempts God's people from keeping their promises to God and others, and that's so evident in this passage. But how does the sexual culture in Numbers 25 reflect society today? You don't have to discuss that if you want to discuss that. I think that's relevant to the passage. Number two, how do you define jealousy? How is jealousy for God's glory different from selfish jealousy? You could talk about that, you know, emotions. Uh, Number three, how does the implication from Numbers 25, so this slide, how does the implication challenge you to look for gospel opportunities every single day? And we will fail, beloved, often. But we must be faithful to try. Okay, let's pray. Father, you call us to make disciples. And you've given us your word. And we see so clearly in tonight's passage how you are a God, whether we agree with it or not, whether it sits well with us or not, we surrender to what's written in the passage that you are a God who has every right to release and pour out your holy, righteous anger and wrath. And that apart from atonement, apart from the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, Lord, we're all bound for that judgment. But yet in your mercy, you sent Jesus. And Lord, for those of us who have Jesus, help us, Lord, to have hearts that break for those around us who we know They're yoking themselves to every other worldview that will lead them to emptiness that will not satisfy their souls. And we have everlasting life. Give us the compassion for people that comes from a passion for the glory of your Son.